go ahead and invite you to open up to Luke chapter 2. Um, we've been going through uh, a series called The Beauty of Christmas, and, and now we're, we're, we're right next to really Christmas. I mean, this is a Sunday away. Uh, Christmas Eve is coming up on Tuesday, and I want to encourage you uh, to, again, come 6 to 7 if you're able to make that. It is a, a sweet time. Uh, it's a candlelit service, so the entire room is, is lit by candles, and we just spend time uh, worshiping God and remembering the gift that he has given us, Jesus Christ. But so far in this series, we've looked at the plan of Christmas, the mission of Christmas, the anticipation of Christmas. Today, we're going to be looking at the glory of Christmas. And we're specifically looking at the fact that Jesus, Jesus has come to save us from our sins for God's glory and for our joy. And so that's what we're going to see today as we dig in. And so I want to go ahead and, and ask you to stand, and we'll begin reading in Luke chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 1 through 20. Uh, we stand here at the reading of God's word uh, for the purpose of reminding ourselves of, of the fact that this word comes to us inspired by God for the purpose of, of correcting and teaching and training us in righteousness. And so let us now read chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, <clears throat> a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Curinus was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men, among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into the heavens, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God, for they all had heard and seen as it had been told them. Let's pray. Father, Father, today we are here knowing that Christmas is just around the corner, and we are specifically focusing in on the birth of your son, Jesus. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you sent your son. We thank you that you sent him, that he would come clothed in, in humanity, that he would one day go to the cross and bear our sins so we could be forgiven, adopted, saved, and receive eternal life. Lord, we praise you 
for this. And Lord, I pray that now as we look at your word and we see just who your son is, why he has come, and what is the result of his coming, Lord, we just ask that your spirit be with us, give us wisdom and understanding today. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Um, Now, prior to our text today, Luke has been helping us understand who this baby is going to be, who Jesus is. In fact, in Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33, an angel came to Mary um, and comes with a message and says this, your son will be the son of the most high, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Later in Luke chapter 1, Zechariah, who's the father of John the Baptist, he prophesies and he says that Jesus will come like the sunrise upon a darkened world. And he's coming to give light and hope and to guide us in peace. And so Luke has been building up our anticipation. He's been wanting us to have high expectations as this incredible king is going to come whose throne and dominion will know no end and he will bring light into this earth. And then we come into our text and it seems what we might say a little less than climatic. I mean, we have Caesar Augustus, and he has declared a census, which is why Mary and Joseph go back to Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem is is kind of a small nobody town, and it is there that they give birth, uh, that Mary gives birth to Jesus, and there was no room, and so they they went to, to a manger of some sort, whatever exactly that looked like. And the only people that seems to know anything about this are are shepherds who are out in the fields. Now, shepherds are about the lowest social status that you can have. So there's lepers. Lepers are those who are counted unclean and removed from society. And shepherds sit right above the lepers. So no one grows up and says, I can't wait to be a shepherd. So this is the lowest of the low. And it's these people who are gathering around Jesus. And so at a glimpse, we might say, wow. It doesn't seem very significant. Luke has been preparing for us for something, and it doesn't seem to quite deliver that way. And what what I want to see, what help us see, is that as we look at this text, that we see the great significance that is here, and that Jesus has come for God's glory and for our joy. And that's what we're going to see here. So first, we're going to see this message of good news that the angel is going to bring. And then we're going to see who this good news is in Jesus Christ, and then we're going to look at the end, uh, what is the result of this good news. So if you look, verse 9, we have an angel appears out of nowhere, illuminates the sky with the glory of God. So like a star that explodes in front of these angels, all of a sudden light fills the darkened sky. And in verse 10 he says, the angel says, fear not, For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Now, the good news, the angel is going to explain in verse 11. And and we see that the effect of this news is that it is going to provide great joy. But what I want us to see first is that this news of great joy is for all the people. And it's, it's important that we see that the definite article, the, is there in the Greek. It does not say it's for all people. 
But Jesus has come that he would be good news for all the people. So the good news is for a particular people. And we saw this last week. If you were here, we were later on in chapter 2 where there's a man named Simeon. And he prophesies and he says that some people will not receive Jesus. In fact, they will reject him. He will be a sign of opposition. And so we know there will be some people who will not receive Jesus and thus not be full of joy. And yet there are these other people who are going to see Jesus receive him and experience this joy and so what i want to ask is is who are these people that will not receive him and then thus who are these people that will receive him and we get that answer when we look at the very titles that are given to jesus because these titles inform us not only of who he is but what he has come to do and so let's look at who is this good news this jesus that has come And we begin in verse 11 where it says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now in verse 4 we see that that, uh, the city of David that Luke is referring to is Bethlehem. Now again, Bethlehem is a small, nobody, insignificant town. And yet, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, in the book of Micah, there's a very important prophecy concerning someone who will be born and coming out of this town. Let me read Micah chapter 5, verse 2. This is what it says. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. So again, even the biblical writers are acknowledging Bethlehem is an insignificant town. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. What we see is that coming out of Bethlehem is going to be this mighty shepherd king. And he's going to save people from from their enemies. He's going to be a comfort to them. And he's going to shepherd them and guide them. It is this king that is going to bring all of Israel back as a people that they would experience the blessings and rule of God. So real quick though, I I think it's good just to pause and ask the question, how is it that Jesus was born in Bethlehem? Well, one answer, and a very correct answer, would be if we go back to Luke chapter 2, verse 1, and we see, well, it's because Caesar Augustus made a decree that everyone had to go back to their hometown in order to be recorded for the purpose of the census. And that is a very fine answer. That would be very acceptable on any test. Robert might even accept that. He's a professor. He might. He's pretty strict, so we'll, we'll see. But, but if we were to ask the question, what is the ultimate reason Jesus was born in Bethlehem, then that answer would actually no longer be correct. For what we see is that the ultimate reason is that Jesus is born in Bethlehem in order to fulfill the prophecy and the very will of God. You see, as Caesar is flexing his muscles, in a sense, and and ordering all of the known world, and they all move according to his word, that they would go uh, to their hometown where a census would be taken. What we see 
according to Scripture, that is that Caesar himself is under the rule of a much greater power and ruler, under God himself, who has made a decree. And it is thus because of that decree that Caesar is making his decree, fulfilling thus God's purposes and will so that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. What we have here is the truth of Proverbs 21.1 lived out. Many of you might know that one. It it talks about the king's heart is a stream of water uh, in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. The, The point that I just want us to see on this small little tangent is that Christmas reminds us that God is the one who is ultimately in control of all things. Is that there is nothing outside of his control. Not even in the location where Jesus was to be born. But let's now look in at these titles. So the first thing we see is that because he's born in Bethlehem, we see that Jesus is to be the great shepherd king who's going to gather his people and he's going to provide peace. Next, we see that Jesus is Savior. Now, in the Old Testament, like if you go back to the book of Judges, the judges were called saviors. They were the ones who God would rise up to uh, redeem his people, to save them from their enemies. But predominantly, all throughout the Old Testament, the one who is called Savior is God. Ultimately, it's he who, who loves and cares for his people and provides and saves them. In fact, in Luke chapter 1, verse 47, Mary, in her song where she's praising God, which that's what we're going to be looking at um, on Christmas Eve, is that song that Mary is praising God with. In Luke chapter 1, 47, Mary says, God is my Savior. So we see that Jesus is now sharing this very same title that God does. Next, we have Jesus is called Christ. Now, many times over the last few weeks, we've, we've zeroed in on this word. The word Christ means anointed one. Now, the Old Testament Hebrew word would be Messiah, but the New Testament word is, is Christ, and it's looking at the, uh, the anointed one, the one who has come to bring comfort to God's people, the one who has come to fulfill the Old Testament hopes and expectations and promises for God's people. And so we see that Jesus is not only the shepherd king, He's not just the one who saves his people, but he's the anointed one. The one who's going to bring God's comfort and rule to his people. And lastly, we see that Jesus is Lord. Now it's this word that changes everything. You see, Jesus is not just a man who comes to do a great act. He's not just a a better judge or just a better king. He's not just a better version of you or me. What we see here is Jesus is God. Prior to this in Luke, the only person that has the title Lord is God. That's the only one he refers to as God. And yet now, what Luke wants us to see, that Jesus is God. He's not coming to represent God. Now we do know from Hebrews chapter 1 that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. To see Jesus is to see the Father But what Luke really wants us to see is that Jesus is God. He is the Son of the Father. He is co-equal and co-eternal with God in every way. You see, Jesus comes as the God-man, and this is why he comes as the ultimate shepherd, Savior, Christ, who is actually able to, to rescue us, to save us. It is because of who Jesus is. He can conquer our greatest enemy. 
And it's always important for us to be reminded of who our greatest enemy is because in our sins, we become on a very horizontal plane. That's where we look and we begin looking this way for what is our biggest enemy. And we often go, well, it's Republicans or it's Democrats or it's foreign powers or it's a boss or it's an employee or a spouse or children or, or a million different other little things that we can come up with. But according to Scripture, what our greatest enemy is is, is sin death and and Satan. And there's no way that you and I can overcome those. We need someone who is much greater than us, much much, uh, the shepherd king, the savior, the Christ, but he has to be the Lord in order to do so. And that's who Christ is. And so Christ has come that he would be born into this world where eventually one day he would go to the cross where he would take your place and my place He'd be nailed to the cross and take the punishment that you and I deserve. Where you and I deserve the wrath of God, Jesus stood in our place that he would receive that. And where it appears that he's defeated and he's buried in the tomb for three days, but then we know three days later on Easter he rises and we see he hasn't been defeated, but yet he has actually defeated sin, death, and Satan. He hasn't been conquered, but yet he is the conqueror. That is our Lord, and that is why Christ has come. That's ultimately what we're celebrating when we're coming to Christmas. When we're gathering around the tree, we're celebrating the fact that God has been faithful to all of his promises in the sending forth of his Son, who is the great shepherd, king, savior, Christ, Lord. That he would conquer our greatest enemy so that by believing in him, by trusting in him, We would have forgiveness of sins. We'd be adopted into his family. We'd be made citizens of his kingdom. And we would have eternal life with him. That's what we celebrate here at Christmas, which climaxes at Easter. So let's come back to our question. Who does not think that Jesus is good news then? So in order to answer that, I actually just, I want to look at another conversation that Jesus has with a man later on in Luke. And many of you are familiar with this story. It's with the rich young ruler. It's in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, verse 18, um, a rich man comes to Jesus and he says, uh, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? At this point, Jesus reminds him of the Ten Commandments, which he quickly says, Yes, I've done that ever since my youth. I've done that, check the box, The morality uh, factor has been met. What else do I need to do? And of course, because Jesus is Lord, he's able to look directly at the person and he sees his heart and he knows that he treasures his possessions. And so he says this in verse 22. One thing you still lack, sell all that you have, distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And so what does he do? And he walks away. And notice what the text says. Verse 23. But when he heard these things, he became very sad. Why? For he was extremely rich. The man walks away from Jesus. He's not filled with joy. And he does this for at least two reasons. Number one, first he sees himself as a good person. He said, I've kept the commands of God, at least so he thought. And in doing so, and in saying that, what he's saying is, I'm really not that great of a sinner. 
I don't need someone to save me. I just need a helping hand. I need a boost. I'm really not that bad of a predicament. I'm really good. In fact, I had a conversation the other day with a guy, and he told me, I don't need religion. And I asked him, well, so why do you not need religion? What, what is your thought through that? And he goes, well, I'm a really good person, and I try to just treat people with good values, and I find that works really good for me. But here's the problem. By whose standard are we good? By God's or by man's? And, and, and honestly, when we compare ourselves to others, we can often conclude that we're, we're pretty good. We can usually always find someone. And we say, well, I feel like I have better morals than them. And thus, when that happens, we do not have a great need to be saved. So that's one reason. The second reason is he loves his riches more than God. He counts his possessions, his accomplishments, and his, and his credentials more valuable than Jesus. He worked hard to, to become who he had. These things were badges of honor in his life. They're what told people, I'm important. And he wasn't about to set that aside. Here's the reason people reject Jesus is because they don't see themselves as sinners and they love things in this world more than they love Jesus and thus they do not need to be saved. They're looking at this way that they can find their greatest treasure somewhere in front of them. So if we flip the question around now, and we say, well, who does receive Jesus then? Who sees Jesus as good news and thus has great joy when they receive him? Now, to answer that, I think we need to come back to our text in Luke chapter 2 and look at who the angel comes to. Let's look at the recipients of this message. Look at verse 9. We have the angel appeared to the shepherds. In verse 10, he spoke to the shepherds. What we see is that just as the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem was not random, these recipients are not random either. The angel came to them specifically. In verse 11, he says, For unto you is born this day. Now, many of you know you are, are getting your Christmas gifts ready. And in order to not be confused on who the Christmas gift is for, you buy the little labels, right? And hopefully you're all buying those sticker ones that are so much easier now. And on those labels, there's a to and a from, right? I think it's pretty straightforward directions. On the to, you write who it's going to. And, and what we have here is that the, the recipients of this divine message is the shepherds. That's who this gift is for. To you uh, for unto you is born this day. He's directing it to the shepherds. Why? You see, the shepherds represent what it is to um, know that you are needy. You see, the shepherds don't have possessions and riches. They don't have 401ks. They're not, they're not even looked up to by others for their morality. They are seen and they see themselves as needy people. Now, it's not that they're greater than anyone else. And it's not that it's wrong to have riches. Just they often blind us to our need. And so these shepherds become representative of what it is to be ready to receive Christ. To know that you need to be saved. The shepherds know they don't just need a, saving or a helping hand. 
They don't need just a boost. They don't need just someone to help improve their life a little bit. They need someone to save them. And thus, when they hear the good news that a Savior has been born, the great mighty shepherd king who will save them from their sins, who is the anointed one, the one who will fulfill all the Old Testament promises and is God, that's the one that we need. He's greater than anything else this world offers. And they run into Bethlehem where eventually they find him. So the question we're meant to ask ourselves is, do we know that we need to be saved? Or do we see ourselves as as morally good people who need a helping hand? Are we trusting in our possessions and our credentials and our accomplishments to satisfy our hearts, to satisfy our souls? And if that's what's happening, I, I would ask you, how's that going? What's that like? Because what, what I find is that for, for those who continue to look for their self-worth, for their satisfaction, in their accomplishments, in their possessions, in their uh, credentials, it's like running on a treadmill. And I hate treadmills. Like, I, I, I despise treadmills. Because you want to know why? Doesn't matter how long you're on it. Doesn't matter how fast you run on it. You go nowhere. You're just right there. It's, it's like the most boring thing in the world. I hate that. We could go on a whole thing. Um, but that's what it's like. If we're trusting in those things to satisfy, it brings us nowhere. It accomplishes no great thing for us. You see, the Bible says that because of sin, no one is good. The only reason we we deem ourselves good is when we create our own standards and we look at other people. But God's standard is perfect. It's holy. It's without blemish. Now you might say, well, that's impossible then. Like, there's no way we can reach that. But let me ask you, would God be worthy of all worship if he wasn't perfect? Would you want to worship a God with low standards? Would that be the God that we'd bow down before? Would that be the God that we say, He satisfies my soul? No. You see, His standards are high. He's perfect. He's holy. He's without blemish. And because we can't reach Him, He sends His Son Jesus to come to us so that we could be saved. So we're right in thinking, wow, he does have high standards, but yet he's also gracious and merciful and compassionate and sends his son Jesus because we can't come to him that we would have eternal life and forgiveness. See, it's in Jesus we experience God's grace and his mercy. It's in Jesus that we experience that joy that can only be found in God. And so what I want to do now is we've looked at what the message is, is that uh, it, is a good me- it is a good message of great joy for all the people, and we see who this message is. It's Jesus, the great shepherd, king, savior, Christ, Lord. And now I want to see what is the result of Christ coming. What, what is he accomplishing? And so to answer that, we go into verse 13. Now, so far, only one angel has appeared. But now when we come to verse 13, we have thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of angels that now appear. And in verse 13, we see them praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men men with whom he is pleased. 
praising God. Glory to God. Peace with man on earth. So first, let's look at the, let, there's two outcomes. There's God is glorified, and there's the, the peace that God gives to man. So let's look at them one at a time. Number one, God is glorified. Jesus has come that he would reveal the one true God. Jesus has come so that through his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, he would reveal the love, the grace, the mercy, the comfort, and the justice and wrath of God. It's important that we don't skip over that. Nowhere in the Bible does God wipe our sins under the rug and say, you know, they just don't matter. Come on in my kingdom anyway. Jesus came so that by grace and mercy we could be saved. But there is a penalty. There is a cost. Our sins have offended God. There's a debt to be paid. And so that is why Jesus goes to the cross. So that God would be just in justifying us. His wrath has been absorbed in Christ. If Christ did not come to the cross, then God would thus be unjust. But it's because he has come that he is just in justifying us. And thus we can glorify God. Christ has come that we would see that everything that he does is for the very glory of God. And when we see ourselves as sinners, we see God's glory at Christmas and in the cross. Let me read to you uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 to 31. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. Now this is Paul writing to a church who thought they, they had a lot of qualifications. And he's saying, you know, you, you're really not that wise. And then he says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to, things, to, bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Like when we look at the Christmas story, when we look at Bethlehem, when we look at the manger and the wrapped and swallowing claws, and we looked at shepherds surrounding him, or if we fast forward 30 or so years to this great shepherd king, Savior Christ, Lord, on a cross. From a worldly standard, it looks very, very foolish. Who's going to believe in this God? Who's going to believe that this guy is the great shepherd king? And yet, when we understand who God is, that he is infinitely rich and powerful and mighty, because of that, he doesn't need to use people of might and power to accomplish his will. He is all-powerful. Thus, he can use that which is lowly, like a crucified Messiah, to bring about the salvation of the world. So it's precisely because who God is that he can use the lowest of means to accomplish the greatest of purposes, which then, it points not to our worth, it points not to our abilities, but to who? to God, and thus he is glorified. So Christ comes, number one, for the very glory of God. That in everything we see throughout the entire biblical narrative and Christmas, going to Easter and, the, and his resurrection, is it points 
glory of God. Secondly, we see that in this, Jesus brings peace to man. So Jesus comes for the glory of God, and he brings peace to man. And what's interesting is that these are both accomplished in the same actions. God's glory and our joy are not opposed to one another. Do you know that? Many people think, well, God's against my joy. He doesn't want us to have fun. He gives us all these rules and things for us not to do. And yet what we have here in this text and in so many other texts is that our only true joy is found in relationship with God as we behold his glory. You see, God's glory and our joy are not at odds with one another at all. It's only as we pursue God's glory and we see the Son, Jesus Christ, as the Savior of the world that we then also discover our joy in him. So we see that Jesus brings peace to man, but notice who receives this peace. Peace among men with whom he is pleased. Again, reminded that not everyone will receive Jesus. Only those who experience God's grace and trust in Christ will experience this peace. And so as we go through here, it's good to ask us, have I experienced this peace? Have I trusted in Christ? Because he's offering it. He offers it to all the, who would receive him and believe in him. Have you believed in Jesus Christ and experienced this peace? And what was helpful, I looked at, when I was studying this part, and trying to just understand the peace that God brings. I went to one of John Piper's sermons that he, he actually preached on this text, and he spoke about three areas of, of peace that Christ gives us. And so I'm going to borrow those now. <clears throat> I probably won't borrow, I'm just taking them, because uh, I have no plans on giving them back. Um, but he gives peace between us and God. And we, we've already kind of looked at this, but just the reminder, Jesus comes as the shepherd king as the Savior, as the Christ, as the Lord, that he would rescue us for our sins. Because of our sins, we read that we are enemies of God and under his wrath. But Jesus has come so that through forgiveness in him, we'd be saved, we'd be forgiven, we'd receive the righteousness of God. We'd no longer be under his wrath, but be recipients of his love and joy and peace. In fact, look at what Romans 5.1 says. This is one of those good verses to memorize. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ has come that no longer would we be at odds and enemies and rebel, rebellious against God, but now we are, we are sons of God. We're at peace with God. We experience that joy in Him. So first and foremost, Jesus comes that we'd have peace with God. But secondly, he brings peace into our own hearts. Because Jesus has come to deal with our sins, he brings peace within us. Because of sin, we're constantly looking for things to give us worth. We talked about this a little bit earlier. If only I had more money, or if only I had a, a better house, or a different spouse, or, or if I had that promotion, or if I hadn't made that decision, then my life would be better. Sin fills our hearts with anxiety and forces us to be in an unending quest for seeking this satisfaction. And what's crazy is that while we're looking horizontally for all of those things and, and hoping that they're going to provide satisfaction, hopefully that they're going to bring the thing that comforts us, hoping that those things are going to be what, what satisfies our soul, they're actually the very things that keep us from the one who brings peace to our soul. Just like the rich young ruler. 
He has all of those things, yet he still knows something is missing. He comes to Jesus, and he says, oh, but I don't want that. I don't want to give these things up. I really want peace. I really want joy. I want to feel like my heart has been satisfied, but surely that can't be at the cost of all my accomplishments and my credentials. That's where I find my worth. And what Jesus wants us to know is that in him, we become children of God. We share in his very inheritance of the Son. We're told that he shares his very glory with us. Uh, Think about it this way. What was the best Christmas gift you got five years ago? Now, if you can remember that, that's pretty remarkable. I'm betting none of you remember And for those of you who have incredible memories, go back 10 years and tell me, what was that great gift that you received? Look, probably there are many of you that have started to sprinkle some gifts around the bottom of the tree. And if you're a parent, you're hoping, you know, these gifts will bring joy to your children. And they'll be happy, and they'll be happy to have those. Or or for a husband, it gives it to his wife, or the wife to her husband, or to whoever. You're hoping it provides some level of joy. And honestly, if they provide that joy for a few weeks or a month, goal's accomplished, right? For very little do those gifts ever last much longer. Or do they ever provide the same level of joy weeks or months later? You see, everything on this earth begins to fade. I mean, think about it with technology. Whatever phone you have right now, it's already outdated. It doesn't matter if you bought it today. It's already outdated. They're already coming up with something greater. And when that new one comes, you're going to look at your new, awesome, amazing phone and go, huh, it doesn't quite deliver anymore like I want it to. Everything fades and yet we're told that in christ we have an inheritance that is unfading and imperishable guarded by the very love of god that's who christ is that's what christ does for us and when we get to the end of romans 8 we read that all of these joy all of the treasures that god has for us nothing can separate us from his love no angels nor powers no, no height, nor depth, nothing can separate us from the very love of God. See, what, what God wants us to know is that in Him we are secure. We are made in His image. We are tainted because of sin, but in Christ we are redeemed. We're being made new. We're now a child of God, and we have infinite value to God because of that. And there is nothing on this earth that can change that. So He says, find your joy in me and only when we find our joy in christ that then we're able to use our possessions and all their things in the way that they're meant to be used for god's glory listen to what paul says in philippians chapter 4 he says this i have learned in whatever situation i am to be content i know how to be brought low i know how to abound in in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. Now, it's important to realize he's writing this in prison. This isn't like after prison where he's like, oh, that's how it all worked out. No, he's in prison writing this. He says, I'm content. And he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
That's not meant to say that we can run the 100 in less than 10 seconds. It's meant to show that in Christ, whatever situation we're in, we can be content. Because God is the one who satisfies our souls, not things and circumstances. What you need is not more money, more possessions, more gifts under the tree, a better marriage and all that. What we need most and foremost is Christ at the center of our lives. And as we treasure him, we'll rightly see everything else and how we're called to love and act with others. First and foremost, God saves us that we would have peace with him, that we'd have peace with our own hearts, and lastly, that we'd have peace towards others. Let me read Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Paul says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. He says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. Here's, when we come into the Gospels, we're faced with our sin. The Bible makes no... Um, apologies for that it's not trying to make us feel good in our sin it presents us as sinners shows us as enemies and rebels of god under his wrath and it shows us that we have no ability to save him and if you go to romans 8 it talks about how because of our sin we have no desire to please god and so the whole situation is hopeless and yet then what we see is God gives grace. Not because we deserve it, but because he's gracious, because he's merciful. He gives grace in Jesus Christ that we'd be reconciled to him. And now, through the Holy Spirit, who pours love into our hearts, that's what Romans 5, 5 says, the Holy Spirit is pouring the love of God into our hearts. And he dwells within us. That as we continue to look back at the gospel and see how we've been saved, that then we would know how we can love others. And when we become overwhelmed with the grace of God, that he saved us and forgave us when we were incredibly undeserving, then we know how we can love and be kind and forgiving to others. See, that's what the gospel does. It gives peace between us and God, peace with our own hearts, and peace that we would love others, even our enemies. I mean, this is why we have, we have 12 guys. There needs to be two more pictures because there's 14 now um, on their side of that wall out there of pastors in India who are regularly going to people who want to kill them. They live in a very hostile area, and they're proclaiming the gospel and it's not a gospel that makes much of them, but it's a gospel that gives peace to all people who receive it. And so they're willing to risk their lives because they know that in our sin, we will continue to run on this treadmill, looking for things, trying to find things that will satisfy our hearts, but it's not able to be found. And so those guys are going out into a very hostile area that they would share the gospel, that more people would know this peace. This is why Christ came. So you and I would know this peace, that we would treasure this peace, who is Christ, and that we would tell it to others, because there is no other gift, there's no other joy that we need than Jesus Christ. And so I want to encourage you, as we gather around the tree, and whether you have a hundred presents or one present, let the presents point us to what truly matters. And parents, this is key. 
Like, it's, it's hard as you're coming in around Christmas to make sure your kids are seeing the real meaning for Christmas. Because no matter what, like, they're glued on, like, the presents, right? And it's cool. We want them to. We want them to be excited about that. Don't try to dampen that joy and yet turn that joy to where it needs to be directed first and foremost. Let them see it. These gifts are good. Let them rejoice in them, but then remind them all these gifts are going to fade. And eventually they're all going to goodwill or they're being passed to someone else, right? But there's one gift that doesn't pass. There's one gift that doesn't fade. It's imperishable. It's the beauty of Christ. So, so guide your children's hearts that way. Husbands, guide your spouse that way. Wives, help direct your families that way. That as you're at Christmas, no matter how many gifts, whether you even have a gift, we have the greatest gift in Christ. It's the peace that satisfies our hearts, puts our souls at rest, so we not continue to have these wandering hearts looking and looking and looking for what's going to satisfy us. But we know we're satisfied in Christ. At that moment, we can actually rejoice in the things that we have because they don't control us. And we're able to give them away freely as a means of showing others the love of Christ. Let's pray. And I'll invite the men to come forward and we'll pass out communion, which celebrates who our, who our Savior is.